0: What do you want? Uh, All kinds of things. But uh, right now, we'll settle for everything you got. (laughs) Ain't that right, Bone? (laughs) You heard what he said? It sounds reasonable! We don't have to die! the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about minutes 131 and 132, which begins with the mariner wading through the flooded trimaran and end with two smokers meeting an unfortunate end. This clip here today is interesting because in the theatrical cut, it appears earlier in the film. I mentioned back in episode 62, hey, there's going to be a thing that is inserted here in the theatrical cut, but in the Ulysses cut it comes later. This is that instance. The scene is set where the Mariner is picking his way through the flooded remains of the Trimoran, and here in the Ulysses cut, he's already gone with Gregor and Helen back to the mini-Atoll and basically told her, good luck, I'm out. Whereas in the theatrical cut, he is wading through the burned-out wreckage of the Trimoran after the first time that they've been intimate together. So she's taking a nap, He's milling around. The way this changes things is that in the theatrical cut, the mariner is all gung-ho for rescuing Enola from the time the boat gets burned until he actually leaves to go to the D's. Whereas here in the Ulysses cut, he has this moment of, I don't want to get involved with this, and this scene here is going to change his mind.
1: Ah, okay. Hmm. I'm thinking about how that changes the characterization of the Mariner and how I feel about that. I might like the theatrical cut without the no-then-yes sequence of events better. Because the no sequence of events that we see here in the Ulysses cut makes me feel like the Mariner hasn't learned anything. He didn't actually form any bonds with these people that he's spent hours of our lives with. And that feels weird. The whole point of the time we've spent on the trimaran is to watch the three of them struggle to get along, to see eye to eye, and then they start to do so and they start to trust each other and there are setbacks, but they get over it. And at the end, they are friends. The Mariner saying no flat out and leaving kind of feels like a slap in the face to that character arc.
0: That relationship that has been...
1: More or less
0: building over the course of the film.
1: It doesn't make any sense.
0: I'm not quite sure which I prefer. Because it does make sense where you're coming from. That by the time that Helen and the Mariner are in a situation where they are both keeping silent in the face of the Deacon as he's threatening to murder them in order to protect Enola. That is a very unified moment when they go under the water and they share those rescue kisses or survival kisses, or whatever they were. It's a ridiculous name, and that's why I haven't committed it to memory. But that is a very intimate moment. And then they sleep together. They should be a team by now, in theory. And you get that in the theatrical cut, which is why they probably arranged it the way they did.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to remember past differences between the theatrical and the Ulysses versus the novelization and how I've aligned myself in the past. Usually that alignment goes along with the novelization. So how does the novelization handle this sequence of events?
0: The novelization structures it very closely along the lines of the Ulysses cut. So I imagine that the people putting the Ulysses cut together were following the way the book worked. The book actually has the Mariner do more than just find these drawings when he goes back to the Trimaran. So this trip... Serves multiple purposes in the context of the book. In fact, I want to dive in to there real quick. Right now, he was in the charred husk of his cabin, sitting on the scorched bunk looking at a chart the scavengers had missed in their haste to destroy his home. He'd found a writing stick too, one of Enola's crayons that had hidden from the heat in a cubbyhole. He made a dot on the chart and wrote, in what he did not realize was a childish scrawl, the word Denver. That was the drowned city he and Helen had visited not so long ago. On this chart were other dots, labeled with the names of other long-dead cities. Seattle, Rio, Flint. But in many cases, the cities were marked with dots. Cities destroyed in that ancient cataclysm weren't always easily identifiable. For years now, however, he had been keeping track of the cities down there to better understand his world. And his world was more than Waterworld, it was the Undersea Kingdom below. But today, in the main hall cabin of his lonely, roasted wreck of a ship, something nagged at him as he studied his homemade map. He went back to his cubbyholes and found, praised Poseidon, his ancient weathered map of the land days world. As he had many times before, he checked it against his homemade chart, and he frowned. But then he smiled. The addition of Denver had suddenly brought everything into focus, or at least explained why things had been out of focus. Placing the homemade map on the grandly printed one, His chart paper was thin enough to see through to the old world map underneath. He turned his map upside down, and all his labeled dotted cities lined up with the cities. So labeled below, Denver with Denver, Rio with Rio, and on and on. Now he could identify the unlabeled dots. Now he could. And something else clicked. There was a pattern here that he had never seen before. Crabs of hell, he muttered. Here's the answer.
1: Oh my gosh! That clears up so many questions that I had. Because I can't remember if it's in this week's minutes or next week's minutes where he has a conversation with Gregor.
0: It's next week.
1: It's next week where he's like, oh yeah, the polls are flipped. And he makes it sound like, oh, it's such an easy answer. And where did he come up with that knowledge? Here. Here is where he came up with that knowledge. He doesn't have that particular vocabulary for it, but he sees that the world is upside down, mm-hmm. which is funny because reminds, okay, it reminds me of a West Wing thing where a group of cartographers comes to visit the White House to present a proposal about inequality in maps, which is totally a thing. Like, you go into it skepticism, but their points are legit about how maps are presented and it reinforces inequality. Anywho. So like, hey, th- we propose this map and they flip it upside down. And it is mind-boggling. But there's no reason that our maps have to face the way they face. That is a societal construct. So if you have this society that's not related to our society, if you have the Mariner who has no context, he could point that map in any direction he chose. Yeah. It makes so much sense. And I appreciate that he was like, by golly, I figured it out. Yeah. That was great.
0: (laughs) We don't get the maps in the movie here, but what we do get is the Mariner finding a large piece of paper with a bunch of Enola's drawings on it. As he pops up out of the water, he's looking down at these drawings, and we close up specifically on a drawing of a tree that Enola's made, and the Mariner seems to get this glimmer of recognition. He has seen this specific thing before, and I know I rag on Costner a lot in this movie, but his, hey, I know this face, I really like, because it's very communicative.
1: Yeah, I agree. You I agree. can
0: see the light bulb coming on, which causes him to dive down under the water, dig out his old National Geographics. The issue of the National Geographic that he holds up, it has a bunch of palm trees or banyan trees or whatever they are, trees and water. It says Paradise Lost. As far as I was able to find, this is not an actual cover. Really? Apparently, this was mocked up for the movie itself. But then again, I could be wrong. I don't know.
1: There are so many yeah. National Geographic covers.
0: But him holding up this photograph of a tree against the drawing of a tree that Enola has made, it's this connection that makes him think, okay, Enola is legit.
1: Yes, I am surprised that it took this long because he doesn't have a huge stash of paper and books. He's got a few and I would know those backwards and forwards. It's like every little tiny piece of reading material in the bathroom, I have read a thousand times. I have read all of the shampoo bottles. I have read all of the toothpaste. I've read it all because when you're in that place, there's only a limited amount of things you can read. So you read them over and over and over again. And if he only has a limited amount of things, consume them over and over and over again. That is very natural. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say it's very human. It is very human. And he is very human. (laughs)
0: What I get such a kick out of is that it's almost as if he's looking at Enola's drawings for the first time. And what I mean by that is that he's really looking at them, not seeing them as graffiti or scribbles or something that he needs to get rid of. He's actually looking to comprehend what is in those drawings. And it's because he's taking the time to look at it, he's able to draw these parallels.
1: I think you hit the nail on the head. It's tied in with his relationship with Enola Mm -hmm. that has not been strong and been very dismissive prior to very, very recently. So you're right. He hasn't looked at her drawings. They have been nuisances, graffiti, like you said. So, yeah, that's exactly it. He is looking at these drawings for the first time.
0: I want to dip back into the book. Him finding her drawings happens very quickly after the issue with the map. We're diving back in here. Numb from the knowledge, he absently turned over his homemade chart, planning to roll it up and place it over the things he'd salvaged. When he noticed Enola's drawings there, sketched out memories of their days at sea together. The trimaran in sailing mode, Helen with her hair blowing, the mariner tossing Enola in the drink. This made him smile.
1: (laughs) The whale fin
0: leaping from the water, he and Enola swimming. This one took the smile away. He traced the simple yet eloquent lines of artwork with a gentle fingertip. If there had been anyone there to see him, they would have seen the mariner's face at its most tender, its most childlike, its most serene, its most human. And then they would have seen it harden, settling into resolve. And when he stepped out onto the deck, his eyes were looking out. Not at any one thing, not at his ruined ship or the pitiful trawler or even the horizon. He was looking at what he had decided to do, and the wind rushed up, ruffling his hair, exposing his gills as if in agreement, urging him on.
1: As much as I don't like in this version, in the Ulysses cut in the novel, that he says no to helping and then changes his mind, as much as I don't like that, I really, really like this scene where he has a couple of realizations and he has this deep realization about his relationship with Enola, that it actually means something to him and he wants to do something about preserving it. I really love that scene, even though I don't like how it came about.
0: Yeah, the... The way it's depicted in the book, it's much more about his realization that he has a real relationship with Enola. There are instances that they have shared in common that she looks back on with enough fondness to memorialize them in drawings. I feel like here in the movie, it's more that the Mariner is realizing that Enola has actually been to dry land. That she is someone not of water world. And therefore, he feels this need to return her to dry land, or at least return her to Helen, so that she won't be exploited.
1: It occurs to me that Enola is the exact opposite of the Mariner. You have this middle-of-the-ground people, people who live on Waterworld. They're fully human, they live on Waterworld, and it's the vast majority of people that we know. Helen, the Atollers, the Smokers, everybody. Then we have these two outliers going either direction. We have Enola, who does not belong on the water. She came from land. And that is where she should be. And then you have the mariner who belongs in the water and that's where he should be. So we've got these two special characters that have found each other and have bonded in their differences. But their differences swing so wildly in the opposite direction.
0: I'm not sure which of the two situations I like better. The movie where he seems to be acting on a sort of logic where... She knows what trees look like, she can draw trees, she must be from dry land, therefore I need to rescue her. Whereas in the book, it's a bit more him realizing that they have a relationship. It's hard for me to say I like one over the other.
1: There are things about both that I like. I think I do like the emotional realization better, though. Yeah. We need that from the Mariner. It's been a hard road for us as viewers to like him, to give a crap about him. I don't think the movie did a very good job of telling us why. It feels like a more satisfying point on his journey.
0: Leaving the Mariner behind for a while, we cut back to New Oasis. And this scene is completely absent from the theatrical edition. In the theatrical edition, the Mariner never left, he hung around, and then suddenly he has a jet ski, he rides off to go after Enola. This scene explains where that jet ski came from, because <laughs> the atollers are hanging out and suddenly two smokers on jet skis, they have guns, and they not necessarily roll up on the atoll, but they arrive on the scene. Yeah. And the Enforcer is the first one to step up and call out to them to see what they want, and as with most things, the dialogue is extended in the book. What do you want, the Enforcer demanded of them. All kinds of things, the fat one said, but we'll settle for everything you've got. Ain't that right, Bone? Bone, the skinny one, giggled his reply. Right, Chester. Chester, the plump smoker, was the brains of the outfit. He holstered his shotgun in a scabbard alongside the jetski. We're waiting, he said, crossing his powerful arms. Why don't you come on up, the enforcer snarled, and see what you get. Chester snorted a laugh, floating, bobbing. Doesn't work that way. You don't want to cooperate? Fine, we'll go back and get our friends, and then we'll come on up. We're part of a religious group, you know. Religious, Bone giggled. We believe in sharing, Chester affirmed. You've destroyed our home, an atoller male yelled out. Why can't you just let us be? Chester shrugged. I don't know. Even religious folk have character flaws. Ain't that right, Bone? And Chester looked toward Bone, and so did Helen. Only suddenly Bone wasn't there. Just his jet ski, floating, bobbing, unattended. A small, abandoned, ghostly, go guzzling galleon on the oil-fouled, ivory sea.
1: (laughs) That is just a beautiful description of... An unattended Ski-Doo.
0: <laughs> I like in the book how it gives the Enforcer a bit more of an opportunity to be tough.
1: Right? I've spoken before how the Enforcer makes me feel safe, but that's purely an aesthetic thing, a very comfortable look about him mm-hmm. that seems warm and gentle and tough and protective. And I'm into that. I'm like, cool. I would like to be near you when times are troublesome. Yeah. But he hasn't really gotten much of an opportunity, especially as of late, to show that. Mm-hmm. So I would have liked that for him.
0: But I do like how we get in the movie, the enforcer calling out to them and the lead of the two smokers, who apparently is named at Chester, talking about how you know, they want all sorts of things, but they'll settle for everything they have. And Bones is there. Giggling along. I call him Bones in my notes. His name is Bone in the book. You can have S's thrown in places. I'm sorry. That's just how it's going to go here. But I like how, when the A Tollers ask, Why can't you just leave him alone? Here in the movie, Chester's like, I don't know. It's a character thing, I guess.
1: I really enjoyed the personality that yeah. we got from Chester in just a few lines. It's dark, but entertaining.
0: It's so much more to the point compared to we're part of a religious society that believes in sharing.
1: Yeah, that was not necessary. A
0: little weird. Like
1: If that's for exposition, we already know that. And the atollers don't care.
0: It's quite the explanation as far as justifying your actions. I also appreciate in the book how he says they're from a religious community, but everybody has their flaws. So they're here to steal and... Typically, you don't think of religious people as thieves, typically. But nobody's perfect, so they are going to either take everything now or come back with a posse and take it all later.
1: Right. So, Bones, did you recognize his face at all?
0: Not at all.
1: Oh, okay. First viewing, I was like, that's a guy. Who is that guy? So, Bones is played by Sean Whalen, who has had a smattering of parts just all over the place. He's one of those guys. But... You know him from the Got Milk commercial with the peanut butter and the Aaron Burr. Seriously? That's him. Huh. Yep.
0: I had no idea.
1: Yep, that's him. He really is not
0: every guy. He's been in a bunch of different things, hasn't he?
1: He has. When you recognize somebody from commercials, it's really hard because they don't list commercials on their IMDb. So I had to actually Google it instead of just going to IMDb and looking up his listing. I got the information and his name on Google and then went to check it out. And yeah, he has been everywhere.
0: Cool. Chester looks over to Bone. He's looking for affirmation. And as it described in the book, Bone's jet ski is now completely unattended. Leaking fuel is a big detail there. As Chester leans over the side of his jet ski, hoping to find Bone there somewhere, like a shark out of a Jaws movie, the mariner leaps up out of the water, grabs Chester, and pulls him below the waves. And it's in this moment that it really gets to shine just how effective the Mariner is as an ambush predator.
1: Yeah, yeah. He really gets to showcase his special talents. It's excellent. This was a fantastic move. My favorite part was that Bone went down without a sound. Uh Uh-huh. That the Mariner had a plan that he was going to sneak up and take out the first guy completely silently. I don't know what the Atollar saw. Maybe they were just paying attention to Chester and didn't see Bone disappear, but they were looking right at him. Yeah. So I guess they saw what happened and just didn't show it on their faces at all, didn't give it away at all, which (laughs) seems weird because some of those atollers are just horrible people. Yeah.
0: Of all the things that the Mariner does in this movie, I think this might be one of the cooler things. I
1: agree. I agree. And this wasn't in... The original theatrical cut either. Nope. Well, that's a shame because you're right. It's pretty cool.
0: The way that he ambushes the smokers and then he gets on to Chester's jet ski and he rides it up to the atoll. The clip for this week cuts off before he has anything to say, but I really like him suddenly appearing from the depths out of the black of night and then he takes over the jet ski and rides up to them. It's just inherently cool. He is this super capable bad dude, like bad in the 80s sense. <laughs> he's, he's a badass fish man yeah. in this instance, and I really like it. And it's a shame that it's not included in the theatrical cut. Absolutely. But in a theatrical cut, they can't necessarily have him you know, still on the atoll when these two show up. Although they could have definitely had him on the atoll... The smokers show up and then have him standing there behind Helen. They all look out at the smokers. You show the smokers on their jet skis. You cut back to Helen and then she's standing alone and she's looking out like, oh, where'd the go? Where did he go?
1: Right. He could have slipped in the water on the other side of the atoll out of view and swam underneath them. Mm-hmm. So he could have had this moment. Oh,
0: honestly, it's only a minute. You could have added it to the two-hour cut of this movie. Absolutely. <laughs> so we're going to leave things in here. We're going to come back next week. We're going to hear the Mariner's cool line. He will announce his intentions to go after Enola. Helen and Gregor will help the Mariner prepare for his rescue mission. And a convenient trail of leaked go-juice will light the way to follow. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham.
1: Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, Directed by Kevin Reynolds and presented by Universal Pictures.
0: Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Ire by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com.
1: Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com.
0: You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute.
1: And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone.
0: If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash
1: Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 66. We'll see you next time.